So I guess there's this image of Israel, mainly of Jerusalem really, and probably most of all Jerusalem's old city, as being full of people who want to get you to do something. It could be to come into their souvenir shop, buy their delicious falafel, or sign a political petition. But let's face it, usually it's about religion. A lot of visitors mistake this for some sort of Middle Eastern aggressiveness, but really it's just a hefty, even oversized sense of missionary zeal. If you've walked around the old city, and not only there, you've probably bumped into them. Christians peddling New Testaments, Chabadniks asking you if you've laid tefillin today, people dressed up like King David playing a harp. At Christ Church, right inside Jaffa Gate, our producer Nava Winkler met one of them, Roddy. From his name, you may have guessed he's not exactly native. He's originally from... North Carolina, South Carolina, obviously. Hey y'all, what's happening? Roddy's a Messianic Jew, a Jew who believes Jesus is the Messiah and regards both the Old and New Testaments to be authoritative. He's in his late 40s, maybe early 50s, but still sort of acts like he's 20, walking around with a bit of a swagger, kind of like a rock star. Sneakers, cargo shorts, t-shirt. Nava found him hanging out in the church courtyard, greeting people who pass by. What's up, brother? How are you? Many of us would, and frankly do, call Roddy a missionary, someone looking to convert people to his religion. But missionaries here have a bad rap. Most don't even like the word. Instead, they talk about outreach and community building. And, to be fair, a lot of the people at Christ Church don't actively seek converts. But Roddy isn't too concerned about these labels. I mean, that's basically uh, what we're here for. Um, it's for anybody who wants to hear the word of Yeshua, uh, which basically is coming from the Tanakh as Hamashiach. And we, we try to share that with everybody that comes through our gates. Friday nights, we have Arab Christians that meet here. Uh, on Shabbat, is going to be the Hebrew service with uh, Israelis, Russians, Diaspora Jews like myself. It's all in Hebrew. They are not Anglican. They are simply Jews who believe in the Tanakh and Hamashiach is Yeshua. Like most Messianic Jews, Radi is referring to Jesus, the Mashiach or Messiah, by his Hebrew name, Yeshua. He explains his strategy. If I'm talking to, uh, to Israelis or Jews who are not believers, then I'm going to have more of a discussion um, and basically listen to their questions and try to answer their questions and give them the tools, the information from the Tanakh on where they can go and find out about the Messiah Yeshua. Because it's in there. They need to go and read. Watch your head because it hurts if you hit. Just a few minutes' walk from Roddy and Christ Church is another man on a mission, Jeff Seidel. I do, I guess, unique outreach. First of all, I have people come to me, but I also go after them. Jeff's also American, an Orthodox Jew from Skokie, Illinois. I stand around the streets and I invite people for Shabbat meals. I scan them, see where they're coming from, who they are, yeah. and then I. I walk up to them and say, for Shabbat dinner, you have a place? Or do you need help with anything here in Israel? I'm active. I'm forward. I also go at night to the different clubs, the bars, and speak with the students there, too. Even as you're talking to me, you see my eyes are looking around. Is anybody there? So, you know. And I don't mind standing here all day long. I've been doing this over 30 years since, like, 1981. It's hard to tell just from hearing him, so let me just describe Jeff here for a second. He's about 5'2", bald, dark kippah, grayish suit, no tie. He smiles a lot and has this unusually friendly face. He's quick. He's smooth. You can tell he's very street smart. See, these people, they're all, they're all going for Shabbos already. You can see, just by telling who they are. Guys, 
guys, for Shabbat dinner, we got a place to go tonight? Jeff doesn't get a reply. You see, I can also tell how they're walking, that they had a place to go. It wasn't like they're just like standing around. I enjoy it. I enjoy walking with people, talking to people, and I get rejections. I've had people tell me, you know, no, thank you, drop dead, you know, bug off. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, where are you guys? Where are you going for Shabbat? Very nice. Yeah, I'm used to it and, it, and it goes part of the job. How are you, sir? So I don't mind. So what's, what's the goal? What? To go is to make young people more aware of who they are as a Jewish person. You know, they go for Shabbat meal. If they want to continue and do some classes, they want to come for another Shabbat meal. It's, it's all it's all up to them. I don't I don't I don't I try not to push people. I don't push people. I feel I just make um, opportunities available for all of them. Mm-hmm. All right, should I uh, wait around? And where are you going for dinner tonight? By your family? Uh, yeah, my family. So, yeah, Jerusalem Missionary Zeal brought to you care of South Carolina and Skokie, Illinois. As for other Israelis on a mission, well, that's our show today. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and welcome back to Israel Story, or Sipur Israeli, here on Vox Tablet. Each episode we have a theme and a few stories that relate to it, and this time that theme is a man on a mission. We have three stories of people on three very different kinds of crusades. Okay, let's begin. Act 1, Mr. Female Members of Knesset. Hello? Safta, hi, it's Mishi. What, darling? It's Mishi. Rafi? (laughs) Mishi. Who is it? It's Mishi, Safta. Rafi? No, Mishi, your grandson. Hello? Shalom, Safta. Ah, Yofi. Mama, look to hear your voice. That, obviously, was my Safta, my grandma, Zina. Two winters ago, a few days after a big snowstorm in Jerusalem brought down a 60-year-old pine tree on the roof of her home, my Safta died, just three months shy of her 99th birthday. When you die at such an old age, most of your friends are already dead themselves, but still, a ton of people showed up at my Safta's shiva. Of course I knew most of them, you know, family, friends, neighbors, all kinds of people my grandma had worked with over the years. But one morning this young man walked in. He was twenty-something and had this short brown beard. He sat down on the couch and kind of looked around. I figured he was probably a friend of one of my cousins and I waited for someone to go up and talk to him. But when I saw that wasn't happening, I introduced myself. We began talking. That's how I met Shavit Benelier. Pretty quickly, it turned out that Shavit knew my Safta quite well. He had visited her, they had had tea together, he interviewed her, and then he even wrote a short biography of her in his book. But the real surprise came when he told me that for the last few years, he had been nominating her anonymously, and without us even knowing, for the Israel Prize, every single year again and again. Needless to say, it's not every day that you discover that someone who isn't even a relative, and who you didn't even know existed, is so interested in your grandma. I just couldn't stop asking him questions. 
And before too long, I realized that if most people's childhood idols are people like Harry Potter or Lady Gaga, Shavit had slightly different teenage heroes. Less Justin Bieber, more Tamar Gujansky, Beba Idelson, Shoshana Arbeli Almuznino, and Geula Cohen. And don't worry, if you've never heard of any of these ladies before, that's totally fine. Most Israelis haven't either. They're all former female members of Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Many of them honestly are pretty minor figures that have been forgotten long ago. But not by this man. Not by Shavit. Who, I began to understand, probably has the most unique obsession I've ever heard of. Yup, I guess we can say that Shavit's greatest passion in life is female members of Knesset. After the Shiva ended, we started going through my grandma's papers, drawers and drawers full of them. And there, tucked away between like a zillion old electricity bills from the 80s and Shanatova cards from all kinds of Dutch relatives, I found an envelope. Inside was a page torn out of a notebook. And on it, in this clearly childish handwriting, was the following message. Dear Mrs. Zina Arman, I'm Shavit, a 13-year-old kid, and I collect famous people's autographs. As one of Israel's 48 current or past female members of Knesset, I'd be delighted to receive yours. Thank you, Shavit. At the very bottom of the page was this squiggly signature that kind of looked like a kid trying to copy the signatures on the Declaration of Independence or something. I called Shavit and brought him the letter. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't believe she kept it. Of course she did. Of course she did. Shavit wrote this letter to my grandma when he was 13. But in order to understand this whole fascination with female members of Knesset, we need to go even further back. As a kid, I don't know, I was like uh, maybe 10 or something. I began collecting autographs of famous people. It was right after Rabin's assassination. And I started sending letters to the cabinet ministers, uh, to former chiefs of staffs of the army, to heads of the Mossad. Uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, you know, people were in the papers. Uh, people from the civil f- service, which I guess interested me from a really young age. I, I really looked up to those people uh, at that point. So while all his buddies from elementary school and junior high were busy honing their soccer skills or playing spin the bottle, Shavit was into correspondence. He would send... Uh, it was a standard letter, just uh, of a little kid, where I'd say I was collecting signature and asked him to send me dares. It was all done by mail, uh, I mean... Oh, because this was before email. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the entire process was, uh, was pre-internet. Uh, Paris was uh, prime minister then, so I asked him <laughs> what he was doing for peace. Uh, Yossi Sarid was uh, Secretary of Environment, so I asked him about recycling bins in my neighborhood. But generally speaking, it was really a short letter, maybe like two or three lines. And did anyone reply? Yeah, a lot did. Uh, the collection uh, is... I have hundreds and hundreds of autographs. Actually, the first autograph I received, I don't know if it affected me later on, was Minister Oran Amir, who was uh, one of only two... Uh, female ministers in that government. How did you feel when you got your first autograph? You know, I was 11 years old. I got, you know, I would open the mailbox every day, get letters from the government with the state emblem on it, and it, it was exciting. 
it was exciting. I remember I would, I would call both my grandparents and, and tell them about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here's Shavit's dad, Yaakov. This was a daily routine, you know. Uh, <laughs> what did we get today? And who, uh, who gave a reply? And who we're still waiting for? And uh, yeah, this was a kind of a daily routine, running to the mailbox to find the letters. Yeah. Uh, it was nice. It was, you know, we are not, we were not as enthusiastic about it and as, uh, uh, you know, obsessive about it, but uh, it was nice to see it, yeah. Every day, Shavit would run home from school as fast as he could to his parallel world, the one in which he was corresponding with Israel's most powerful figures. This is Nava, his mom. He saw that people were actually replying to his letters. Almost all of them, actually, and his appetite grew, I guess. He began studying the history of the state through these autographs. Prime ministers, ministers, current, past. Slowly, he began to widen his circles even more so. He ventured into military men, Supreme Court justices. And finally, he even got to people who signed the Declaration of Independence, who were still alive. And believe me, he's a whiz. No one can tackle him. Like, ask him who the second minister of agriculture was, who this one was, that one. No one has a clue. But Shavit will know. I remember uh, that in uh, summer of 96, my parents sent me to a summer camp in Europe. And I was uh, totally bummed because Bibi Netanyahu had just been elected prime minister and was in the middle of putting together his coalition and cabinet. Uh, and I was missing out on it. So uh, my grandpa would update me in letters. I guess I, I guess I even asked him to about all the news. Um, yeah, not exactly a normal thing to do, I know. But that was just what I was into. Did you like try to push him to more sort of, you know, I, I don't know, quote unquote, normal hobbies? Well, I did try, you know, I'm... Uh... I'm an athlete myself, and I'm a fan of uh, all the American uh, sports, and I'm actually watching uh, American football and American basketball, whatever, or baseball. <clears throat> he, he showed no interest. <laughs> actually, when he, he was in school, uh, especially in high school, he was not even participating in, uh, you know, in gymnasium. So was Shavit able to find in school like any, any friends that were, he was able to share this passion with? Not really. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, uh, he was our third uh, son, and uh, it was definitely, you know, uh, different than his uh, brother and uh, sister. It was definitely uh, different than his, you know, uh, our neighbors or whatever. And uh, or, so, what did what did his uh, his older siblings think? Did they think that he was like a big nerd? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> I'm a proud dad of a nerd son. <laughs> when when you got all these signatures like wh- what did you do with them did you have albums yeah i have albums <laughs> um they're uh they're kind of collecting dust dust on the shelves right in back of me but uh yeah i put in so much sh- time into them can 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 you bring them really <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay but I'll, I'll 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 be back Uh, this, these are 
Actually, this is like the, the first album. Um, so it opens up with the presidents of the state of Israel, goes on to the prime ministers. After Shavit had exhausted the big ones, current and former prime ministers, cabinet members, and army heads, he didn't really know who to approach next. Um, I thought this was probably the end of that obby, that the collection was done, uh, because I couldn't really think what the next group would be. I knew that all the former members of Knesset was just, you know, a tremendous number of people, and current number, members of Knesset didn't really interest me too much. So um, I, was, I was looking for a group that would be manageable number-wise, but also have really interesting backstories. So I looked into how many women were in the Knesset, and it was a really small number. And I figured uh, that probably in all of Israeli history, there weren't that many that served in, in each Knesset. So I looked into it, and it was like around 50 women uh, in total. Um, I immediately knew that that would be my next project. And so, when he was just starting high school, Shavit set off to work. In the next few years, he got in touch with all these ladies. In reply, he got not only signatures, but just as often an invitation to stop by for a cup of tea. Like someone who gets a backstage pass to a Nirvana concert or something, Shavit was totally starstruck. I remember calling uh, Zava Galon at home. And, you know, looking back, I had, I had so much chutzpah. Um, and, and, I mean, I, like, I, I sat in Shulamit Aloni's living room. It was really hard to grasp how amazing all this was while it was happening. Like, you come to a house and you meet someone who actually worked personally with Henrietta Sold, or uh, sat as uh, chair of a department at the foreign office in the first years of statehood. And a woman who received a Nobel Peace Prize, not herself, but as chairman, chairwoman of uh, UNICEF, sitting there was uh, basically like a dream. And yeah, he met with anyone who was willing, and we got sucked in too. He was just a kid, so we had to drive him to all kinds of random kibbutzim around the country, to old age homes. I, I really don't know what drew him to this, but... Uh... You know, he has, he has many, many nice uh, female friends among the female members of the Knesset. <laughs> Pretty quickly, this whole project started to take over Shavit's life. He thought that the only way he could really capture all these experiences, all the stories he heard in the living rooms of elderly ladies who once served in the legislature, would be to write a book. The Book of the Female Members of Knesset. Yeah, the, the idea was uh, to collect their life stories, a full bio from birth till, well, in some cases, death, and um, uh, focus on their parliamentary activity, which was uh, what brought me in touch with them in the first place. So in order to do that, and maybe this is really a weird obsession, <laughs> in order to get the full picture of what they did in the Knesset, I began reading all of their speeches over the years, thousands and thousands of wow. them. Wow, what, what was that like? Tiring, <laughs> very, very tiring. Um, I have shelves of their autobiographies, which I read. Um, I even read Pnina Rosenblum's autobiography, a 300 pages <laughs> one. And uh, <laughs> well, let's just say uh, I wouldn't have read it otherwise. Pnina Rosenblum, just in case you're not up on your Israeli cosmetic product trivia 
was a former beauty queen who served for about a second and a half as a member of Knesset. So what did all these female members of Knesset think about your project? Well, I, I would guess to them I was just this young kid who kept on saying he was going to publish a book of their biographies. But I doubt they thought it would actually happen. But Nava Arad, one of those former members of Knesset Shavit contacted, remembers it differently. I mean, very few people would do such an impressive project. And here he was, this young teenager, and not some sort of gender studies guy or something. Nava is now in her 70s. She served as a member of Knesset from the Labour Party for four terms and was later the Prime Minister's advisor on women's issues. And I remember that he called me up and said that he was writing a book about the female members of Knesset and asked if he could come talk to me, and I said, sure, why not? I was delighted. I thought it was a great idea. I really appreciated his initiative, and he wasn't a nudnik or anything. didn't have an agenda. And even after that, he'd call from time to time and ask how I was doing. Now, it's easy to forget that this entire time, as Shavit is running between one former MK and another, he was still in high school, doing his bagruyot, his matriculation exams, and preparing for the army. I remember I would uh, bring all kinds of letters with me uh, to school that I received, you know, like responses from uh, former female members of Knesset. And the the students would at school would think I was playing in the big league that was like in touch with the prime minister every day or something. But no, <laughs> by the time... Uh, by the time I got to the army, it was pretty clear to everyone who served with me that this was my thing. Like that you were Mr. Female Members of Knesset. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Eventually, he convinced the Prime Minister's office to organize a reunion of all the former women members of Knesset that were still alive. Shavit showed up in uniform. I, I came straight from my basic training. My commander had to give me special permission. <laughs> what, what did you tell her? Uh, I, t- I told her about all, all about this event that I helped organize, uh, that it was with the Prime Minister's office. I imagine uh, she thought it was basically the most far-fetched excuse she'd ever heard to get a few hours off basic training. <laughs> but but um, I asked someone at the Prime Minister's office to vouch for me, and they let me out for the evening. Even after the reunion, when his friends from the army used their precious vacations to take their girlfriends on romantic weekends to the north or went to hang out at the beach, Shavit continued to crisscross the country, meeting up with old ladies and reading up about them in dusty archives. I devoted a lot of time uh, on Fridays and uh, in the evenings when I got some time off to the project. Whenever I got a day's vacation, I would try and interview a former member of Knesset. Um, you know, today, uh, when I look back at it all, I'm, I'm not really sure what kept me going. But really, like, something like 90% of my free time in the army was devoted to traveling around Israel, meeting with them, going to the Knesset, reading their speeches. Now, in a normal country, you know, with a stable political system... Shavit would get closer and closer to finishing his project. But his biggest problem was that every few years there was suddenly a new election. And that just meant 
new female members of parliament he needed to meet and interview and research. I did not think it would take eight years. I never imagined uh, I would have to deal with three new election cycles, just kept on adding more and more material. So new female members of Knesset sort of became your biggest nightmare? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. The book, which is called The Members of Knesset, Leading Women in Israel, came out finally in 2011. And in some ironic role reversal, Nava Arad became sort of a Shavit groupie. Only when I saw the book did I really understand what a tremendous job he did. I mean, it was always clear that he was this idealistic guy, someone who, you know, once he decided to delve into a topic, he would go all the way. He's really like a ray of light, like a flashlight that discovers all kinds of hidden details. When I read his book, and believe me, I read it cover to cover, I found out all kinds of things about myself that I didn't even know, or other friends of mine who I've known for years. And suddenly, I was learning new stuff about them. He taught all these female representatives about their own lives. Now, if this is an obsession, it's a great one. Up until the last elections in January 2013, the day after my grandma Zina died, there had been 93 women elected to the Knesset. After the elections, 16 more were added, so 109 women from 1948 till today. Shavit met up with more than 70 of these women, and with family members of many of those who had already died. He stays in touch with a whole bunch. Shavit, are you married now? No. Because in a way, like, if you get married, your, your, your wife would be inheriting like dozens and dozens of, of mother-in-laws, which are all these <laughs> elderly women that you've, you've collected over the years. Um, yeah, she would have to deal with it. <laughs> Just before I left, I had one last question for Shavit. So, Shavit, honestly, do you have a secret desire to be a female member of Knesset? <laughs> uh, I guess I'll never be a female member of Knesset, but a member of Knesset? Um, when I started getting to know them personally, when I, when I wrote the book, when I, I, I realized life, you know, is, is more complex than... Uh, than a 10-year-old asking for autographs. But uh, yeah, I have, I have a lot of uh, respect for, for people who, who devote their lives in, in, in these positions. Once you get to see everything that goes on there from up close, all the amazing work uh, that doesn't end up in newspaper headlines um, and Facebook statuses, it's really an amazing place. So, member of Knesset, I don't know, maybe one day. The other day, as we were finishing up the piece, Shavit emailed me with some exciting news. In March, the 110th female member of Knesset, Nabila Espanyoli, will be sworn into office. And yes, Shavit's on top of it. If you happened to visit Eilat this past summer, you might have noticed them. They're kind of hard to miss. That's right. Elat has many, many new residents. And no, they're not foreign workers or German tourists who can't seem to part with the warm rays. Not at all. Daniel Estrin made the trip down south to the Red Sea resort town to meet a man on a deadly mission to get rid of them. Act 2, Birds of a Feather. 
Eilat, 7 a.m. The city is quiet and peaceful. The ocean is still. The tourists are fast asleep in their hotel rooms. One man, approaching retirement age with a baby face and sparkling eyes, makes the rounds of the city in his white pickup truck. Every once in a while, he stops, rolls down the window, looks through the sight of his hunter's rifle, and shoots. Did you see him? he asks. Now they've learned. We'll call him Yoram, even though that's not his real name. You'll understand why in a minute. He explains what just happened. The one who stayed doesn't know me, he says. He's probably young, so he stayed to have a look. The curiosity killed him. It isn't even 8.30 a.m. and there are already four dead. Residents and tourists are beginning to wake up, so Yoram carefully places his rifle in the back seat, puts on a CD of oldies music, and calmly drives downtown as if he didn't just finish a killing spree on the outskirts of town. The victims of this killing spree, you'll be relieved to know, are not people. They're crows, a type of bird that is not indigenous to these parts. It's said that about 30 years ago, a ship from India anchored in the Red Sea port of Aqaba. On board was a bird known by scientists as the house crow. It got off the boat, settled down in a lot, established a large family, and hasn't left the city to this very day. And ever since, every summer, the crows attack. These calls were recorded by the Eilat Municipality Hotline this past summer. For years now, residents have called in to report a range of violent encounters. A lifeguard at a beach hotel says a crow swooped down at his head nearly every day for over a month and left him with a bloody forehead. One woman says a crow wouldn't let her and her family out of the house for hours without attacking them. In June alone, the hotline got about 60 calls like these. Crow attacks do happen in other parts of the world, but Sadok Tsemach, manager of the Eilat Bird Observatory, says Eilat's species, the house crow, also known as the Indian crow, is especially cruel and especially vengeful. And he says they have a phenomenal memory. They don't forgive and don't forget. In terms of aggressiveness and intelligence, the, the Indian crow is, is number one. When the crow feels threatened, it attacks, even unprovoked. They're, they're very suspicious. The Indian crow is an invasive species that doesn't belong here and, and isn't doing any good right now. He's doing no good. The municipality wanted to do something about these crows, so it hired a hitman. That's where Yoram entered the picture. He was the perfect man for the job. He got his first gun around the time he was bar mitzvahed. He served as a sniper in the Israeli army. He fought, as he put it, a war here, a war there. And for a while now, he's been the city's hunter in charge of shooting unwanted animals crossing the border to Israel from Jordan and Egypt. Like any successful hitman, he lives a double life. When he's not out with his gun, Yoram is actually a peacenik. He teaches seminars on Arab-Israeli coexistence in local schools. He meets friends from Jordan when they're in town. 
He visits his Bedouin friend's greenhouse in the morning to try the cucumbers. Yoram's also a pretty well-known environmental activist in the city. He even discovered a new species of fish in the Eilat Reef that's now named after him. In short, he's just a really interesting, likable guy. But for two hours, a couple of days a month, he becomes Yoram the hitman. Apart from the people who hired him, almost nobody knows about his mission. At the moment, I'm doing it uh, quite in a secret. And he wants to keep it that way. I, I don't show my face in public. Uh, I usually don't go out of the car while I'm shooting the, the crow. I stay inside the car. Because I believe that this work has to continue for, for many years. And uh, unfortunately, there's not many people in my uh, skill that can do this work. Not in this area and not in Israel at all. People in the city may not know who he really is, but the birds do. Uh, here in Elat, I found that uh, very quickly that they recognize me with the car, without the car, wherever I go in the street, they know me. Yoram never married, doesn't have kids. He lives by himself. But there's one crow in the city that sees to it that he's never really alone. There's one crow that uh, when I go out of the, my house, he's there, he's calling the others. When I finish work, I come home, he's there. When I go early, he's there. While we were talking in his parked pickup truck, Yoram spotted something. I looked out the window and saw a few crows in a tree across the street. The kind of thing you see your whole life and never give any thought to. Those are the crows we were shooting at before, Yoram said. And for the first time in my life, I got creeped out by crows. For the rest of the day, I walked around the city looking over my shoulder. Who are you? Something out of a Hitchcock movie. What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of all this. Yoram says he's killed about three or 4,000 crows over the last 10 years, without publicity, without anyone knowing, and no one seemed to mind. Until one morning, this May, he shot the wrong crow. The crow that lives next to Daniela Schulenberg-Ortner, the city's number one animal rights activist. Daniela looks like you might expect an animal rights activist to look. She's got shoulder-length blonde hair with a streak of turquoise to match her turquoise eyeshadow and turquoise bracelet. In her other life, she's a clinical psychologist, and the walls of her office are covered with framed diplomas and certificates. In her free time, she directs the local branch of Israel's version of PETA. The organization's called Let the Animals Live. And no doubt about it, Daniela lets those animals live. She's got 27 cats, 17 dogs, and yes, one crow. Hey, Keanu, how are we doing today? Hmm? She calls him Keanu yes, after the actor okay. Keanu Reeves. Yes, it's okay. It's okay, it's okay. Keanu lives in a big cage in the yard. She found him with crushed legs, nursed him, and today he's basically part of the family, at least until he recuperates. Daniela takes him out to introduce us. He stretches his head back and opens his beak a little. He seems content, even a little cute. Did you get your medicine today already? Hmm? Getting back to that morning in May, Daniela got a telephone call from her 13-year-old son. Well, I I was uh, out of the house and my son uh, called me hysterically that somebody is shooting at our house. 
He said he's afraid it's a terrorist shooting at our house. Daniela called the police, raced home, and hid under the table with her son. Then the police called back to say, don't panic, it's not a terrorist. It's just the municipality's sniper shooting some crows that attacked the neighbor. Nothing to be worried about. But Daniela was furious at the city, not only for having put her son in danger, but also for doing harm to an innocent creature. We need to coexist with them in an urban environment and, uh, and not kill them and shoot them. That's not a solution. She may sound calm now, but at the time, she was incensed. She wrote an angry post on Facebook. I asked her to read it to me. It's crazy what's happening in Eilat, three exclamation points. My son is at home with a stomachache and calls me frantically that someone is shooting at our house, three exclamation points. Skipping down to the end. Even if there is an antiquated law that permits the shooting of crows, it's barbaric. What, is this the Wild West? The Facebook post went viral. A former Israeli lawmaker who just came out with a Hebrew children's book about a friendly crow sent a letter to the mayor of Eilat accusing the city of cruelty towards animals. The local media picked up the story and quoted Daniela. And with that, Daniela has come to be seen as the one on a mission. If people used to call the Eilat municipal hotline to ask for help with the crows, Daniela says some have now started to call her to ask that she come pick up a nestling or injured crow. We're not God, you know. We're supposed to coexist with these animals in peace and uh, not shoot them. They're very smart animals. They're very intelligent birds. They see people shooting at them or hurting them or killing their babies. Then it makes them, of course, more aggressive. I think it's doing the exact opposite to shooting. I think it's making these birds more aggressive than any other animal because, you know, we're shooting at them. It's been 10 years, a whole decade, that the city's been sending Yoram to kill the crows, to fight this infiltrator with no mercy. But maybe Daniela is right, and the real enemy is the hitman himself, who instigates the crows' aggressive behavior. I am tending to sue the city and this person uh, for what uh, they did. After Daniela published her story, the police set out new rules for Yoram. No more shooting inside the city. Only on the outskirts. Now, when he drives around the city... He sees entire packs of crows enjoying immunity, and he can't do a thing. It seems that Daniela and the crows have won. In, in the scenario of the good guys and the bad guys, who, who, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in this situation? I am the, the good guy. I saw it uh, many times during the year that people attacked by the crow. And it's not nice. It's not uh, good to anyone. And th- these people are scared sometimes to, to leave the, the home. So then they phone to the municipality. They send me. And I shoot the crow. The person that was attacked, he, wa- he wanted to kiss me. Some of them scared to go out. I said to him, here, he's dead. You can go out. For them, I am like an angel. Unfortunately... With the crow, the only way they will understand is to shoot them. So I think this war, it's for a long term. According to the city's count, there are now about 260 crows flying around a lot. That's it, just 260. But now that the police has ordered Yoram to stop the shooting inside the city, he says their numbers are only going to grow and that there will be more attacks next summer. 
He says it's only a matter of time before the city begs him to get out his rifle again. Killing the crows is not a perfect solution. Yoram knows that. But he's been around long enough to know that some things in life simply have no perfect solutions. I forgot to ask you, how old are you? 66. 66. And no one to replace me. <laughs> when, are you, when are you going to retire? I'm not. My, my work is my hobby. So everyone to keep his hobby. As long as he keeps up with his work, his nemesis Daniela will keep up with hers too. And so will the crows. That was Daniel Estrin. Daniel reports from the region for AP, NPR, and Vox Tablet. All right, our final mission actually takes place outside of Israel. But in a way, it couldn't be more Israeli. Here's Nava Winkler. Act 3, Whistle Stop Tour. Professional conferences come in all shapes and forms. But not many, at least none that I've ever been to, include headlining acts by chicken impersonators. But for Elik Frumchenko, a father of two-year-old twins who lives in Kiryat Ono, this seems pretty normal. For him, that's just part of the game at whistling conventions. Okay, but we should probably back up a second and introduce the man. Okay, so I'm Elik, Elik Frumchenko. I'm, well, in my profession, I'm a marketing manager. I work for an auto magazine. That's what I do in my real life. But the truth is, much like Clark Kent and Superman, Elik also has a secret identity. Yeah, you know, I'm also a professional whistler. Now, if you're like me, or just plain normal, maybe you don't know what it means to be a professional whistler. I mean, a lot of people whistle. In the shower, on the street. But it turns out that professional whistlers have an area of expertise. Okay, so first of all, I can do all kinds of cool effects. Like, for example, I can imitate a cell phone. And I can do also a vibrating cell phone. So that's pretty much my specialty. And beside that, all kinds of other things like bird songs. And how does one become a professional whistler, you might be asking yourselves? So here's one way. It all started when I was a nerd at the sixth grade. I did three things. First of all, I played ping pong with myself. Second, I watched Star Trek in the TV. And third, I whistle. I did some special effects and uh, very nice stuff. And they passed and, you know, I just flow with it. Then one day, after one of his Star Trek episodes was over, another program came on. That's the whistler's call and he knows it all. So remember that he's checking on you. Back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe even into the 50s, you had whistlers accepted as musical artists. You had well-known professional whistlers traveling with the big bands and taking their turn. You know how the trumpets players stand up and they do their thing and then they sit down and the clarinet players stand up and they do their thing? Well, a whistler would come out in front of the band. People like Elmo Tanner. It was a documentary called Pucker Up, about professional whistlers. When, when I saw that movie, I saw that uh, there is a world of whistling 
that I didn't know of. You had uh, Fred Lowry, the blind whistler, Muzzy Marcelino, you know, these were all whistling greats. And I was thinking, wow, it's exactly the people that feeling like me, they have a community. Then I call myself a professional whistler. Following this experience, Elik joined all kinds of online whistler forums and whistling listservs. It's like, uh, you know, like a bunch of people are speaking in a language that only you understood. All those years, you thought you were alone. But turns out there's a bunch of whistlers out there that are meeting and doing festivals, and you're one of them. But it was only in the summer after his second year in university that Elik realized just how expansive this whole world of professional whistlers really was. Israelis are big travelers, everyone knows. But China, at least at the time, wasn't a super popular destination for young backpackers. But, well, Elik's an adventurous guy, and off he was for a five-week-long trip. Everything, the food, the costumes, the language, were completely foreign to him. So I go to this uh, Chinese uh, guest house in uh, the middle of Shanghai, you know, and uh, I was completely in a kind of a backpacking mindset. I was sitting at the computer checking my emails and uh, I saw this uh, whistling forum uh, message, a whistling festival in China. So I click it. The festival will be held at Hebei province. And then, you know, my wheels in my head started to turn and I'm saying, let's do it. So Elik wrote to the organizer, a Chinese master whistler called Whistler Li, with a ton of questions. After all, he had no idea what to expect. How far was Hebei province? Where could he stay? Would anyone at the conference speak English? A few days later, he got an answer in his Yahoo inbox. Dear Mr. Elik Fromachenko, the whistler, it will be an honor to the field of whistling in China if you could attend our convention. Whistler Li sent Elik directions to some restaurant in Hebei province. They were in Chinese, of course. So I went to the central bus station in Beijing. And I showed this letter that uh, he sent me to a bunch of people who didn't speak any English. Got to the bus, no one spoke there in English. After two hours, he dropped me in the middle of some interstate freeway. And you just go down in a highway and you wait for a taxi to, to come. And then taxi came very fast and he took me to a trip inside the city. This Chinese taxi driver was doing like, kind of like rondels inside the city because he wanted the meter to go up and up and up, and he didn't want to stop, so... Eventually, Ellie got to a huge restaurant. Don't forget, it is China. I guess calling it a restaurant might give you the wrong image. It wasn't like a room off the sidewalk with tables and chairs and a kitchen. No, it was this mammoth, concrete, Soviet-style, multi-story building with vast banquet halls on each landing, all full of locals dining on dishes of chicken feet and eels. Mainly men, Elik remembers, most of them on the older side. Very few women. Elik also noticed that there wasn't a single tourist in sight, so it all it felt authentically Chinese. Real. The walls were very, very white, with framed pictures of dragons and Chinese calligraphy. There was a wide, grand staircase with red carpets. It actually looked kind of nice and upscale. Elik, to say the least, didn't really fit in. Think about it. A day that started at 5 a.m., I'm stinky. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sweaty, and I have this big mochila on, and uh, my hair is all, you know, everywhere. I mean, really, I was drenched in sweat and totally disgusting. And I smelled. Yeah. He starts climbing up the stairs in search of the whistlers. And I'm walking the first floor, and I'm walking the second floor, and, and I'm all sweaty. And, you know, I'm gasping for air. 
the excitement. You don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know what will be. Eventually, we, we came up to the fourth floor and he opened the door and I see a crowd of 120 people. Whistler Lee came to the entrance and said, I want to present the great Whistler from Israel, Elik from Chenko. And everyone stood in the same time and, and uh, clapped their hands. And I was like, shishi, shishi, which is thank you in Chinese. And I was shocked. The next two days, Elik explains, were a total blast. I guess there's just so much of the day you can fill with whistling performances and technique workshops. So most of the time, the whistlers, bus drivers, army officers, local teachers, would just sit around and talk. Only two people, Whistler Lee and a young cadet in the Chinese Navy, spoke any English. The cadet sort of appointed himself to be Elik's interpreter. And that was a pretty good call because Elik was a real attraction. Most of the people there told him they'd never met a non-Chinese person. Local TV stations heard of the international whistler who came all the way from Israel and came to report about him. There was a serious scoop here. It was, hold on tight now, the first visit ever of a Western whistler to the area. Elik was a kind of Marco Polo number two. Everyone was just wild with excitement. I'm not really sure what he's saying, but don't take my word for it. Go to the episode webpage, click the link, and see for yourself. What you'll see is that everybody wanted to talk to Elik. There was amazing and really surreal moments uh, over there. You know, like example, there was another whistler, one of the other guests of honor, I guess. He was a 67-year-old Mongol whistler, the eldest of the group. And uh, we had kind of like a sit together in the morning at breakfast with the, all the other whistlers, and he came to me and said like this, and the translator guy is saying, he says, you Israelis should crush the Palestinians without no mercy. <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, shishi, shishi. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I acted diplomatically. I think that we need to do a peace with the Palestinians, but, you know... And it felt like, you know, it was some f- kind of honest political summit be- between two real people. When it was finally Elik's turn to whistle, he was sort of a keynote whistler, I guess. He got on stage and said, I, w- I would like to whistle a sad Israeli war song that's called Choref Shivim Veshalosh. That's right. Of all the tunes in the world, he chose The Winter of 73. He even tried to explain, using sign language, what the song is all about. If you don't know it, it's one of those really iconic songs which basically every Israeli knows by heart and is a staple at any Yom HaZikaron, or Remembrance Day, ceremony. It was written in the early 90s and performed by a choir of IDF soldiers who were born in the winter of 1973, after their fathers returned from the Yom Kippur War. Now they sing, even though their parents had promised them that they would never have to fight another war, They themselves are soldiers, holding a gun, wearing a helmet. As removed as it was, the Chinese, well, they loved it. They were very, very excited about it and about my story. At the end of the convention, everyone gathered together to take a group photo. So I'm sitting there, me, Whistler Lee, 
and the old mo- Mongol guy sitting there like right in the middle of the picture. We are the only one who's, who is sitting, the guest of honor. It's exactly like where usually the prime minister, the president, and the foreign minister would be. And uh, I only just met these people like 48 hours earlier, and that was an amazing feeling. The most exciting part for me, when it really came in a full circle, when I uh, read what Whistler Lee wrote a few days after in the Whistling Forum. He was doing this convention for many years and no one came and I came. For him, it was the, the meeting with all the Whistling World. And I'm, I'm sure that he was really working on it a very long time and invested it because his English wasn't so good as the post was. So it was very exciting to read, to read this. I was really moved by it. And that's it. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love any help in spreading the word. So don't forget to like us and share the episode on Facebook, where you'll find us under the name Israel Story. Follow us on Twitter at at Israel Story, and go to tabletmag.com, where you can find all the previous English episodes on Vox Tablet. And of course, if you speak Hebrew, tune into our Hebrew episodes. We're wrapping up our second season on Galei Tzal, but you can hear everything from the very beginning on our site, israelstory.org or on SoundCloud, just search for Israel Story. And as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments, so post on our Facebook page or email us at contact at israelstory.org. And we're going to end this episode with an Israel moment. Let's go back to where we started, Jerusalem's old city. Right after Nava left Jeff and Roddy, she ran into this guy. Everybody wants to know about Judaism. Judaism is something very sweet, very nice. Yes. To get close to Hashem, to go to God. Yes, yes, of course. Um, Even me, I became to be Baal Tshuva. I served in the Israeli army in 1983. Yes, but we love every everybody. We love my wife. She gonna kill me. Goodbye. Just reminding you that we want to hear your Israel moments. So if you have a piece of tape from Israel that you really love, send it to us. Again, it's contact at israelstory.org, and we'll air our favorite submissions. For help on today's episode, a special thanks to our newest team member, Nava Winkler. Thanks to Alex Kappelman from the great new podcast pitch about music and how it affects us. If you haven't already heard them, you totally should. Check it out at hearpitch.org. To Daniel Estrin, Karen Carlson, Nomi Chazan, Gaia Ofer, Ganit Gray, Anna Fogel, and Ethan Pransky. As always, to Charles Monroe Kane, Kirill Owens, Sarah Nix, Steve Paulson, Anne Strainchamps, and all the team at TT Book. Our executive producer is Julie Subrin, and a huge thanks to the rest of the gang at Tablet. I'm Mishi Harman, and the Israel Story staff includes Yochai Meital, Roy Gilron, Shai Satra, Nava Winkler, and Maya Kosover. Join us next episode, and meanwhile... Yalla bye. Sadaroma mit Ersheva Ruaba mit Barnoshevich Villa Arabayara. Naradiani Mahmi Harta et El Amar Hishavarta Vehine Yukofeda. Hey da Roma, hey da Roma, hey da Roma Leila. Jeepim kantasim baruah halokhem roshofa